And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Team GB's Olympic hopes were alive. Score three more goals than the Netherlands, tick. And then comes stoppage time. The Dutch score in the 91st minute. England need another. The bronze! Lucy Bronze comes to the rescue. England wins 6-0, but the Netherlands game is still going on. The England players wait on the pitch. And then... The ball the Netherlands go ahead on goal difference and into the Nations League finals. Team GB out of the Olympics. So where did it go wrong for England? And what does it all mean? I'm Sophie Penny and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. The 6-0 victory here by England is not going to be enough. Later on, we'll be chatting about another team that missed out, Sweden. The silver medalists at the last two Olympics haven't qualified for the first time ever. I think it's kind of interesting that they have scored goals from open play against Spain, but Mm -hmm. they have struggled against the other teams, Switzerland and Italy. But now it's England and Team GB. If you rode that emotional roller coaster as hard as we did, send in your questions to our sparkly new email address, fte at theathletic.com. Right, let's get the opinions of The Athletic's women's football reporter, Charlotte Harper, who's joining us from Glasgow. Hi, Charlotte. Good morning, Sophie. And The Athletic's women's football editor, Chloe Morgan. Hi, Chloe. Hi, guys. That was absolutely wild, wasn't it? Chloe, how did you deal with those last few minutes? Not very well, if I'm being honest, Soph. It was obviously a very turbulent time. I think, you know, when that Lucy Bronze goal went in, I think collectively, I mean, I was watching it with a couple of friends. Yeah, and it seems to be around the stadium. Everyone just seemed to go absolutely wild. We were like, of course we've done it. This is it. I mean, this is one of the greatest comebacks that we've seen uh, in quite a long time. And then, yeah, the Netherlands happened again. It was so intense, wasn't it? And hats off to the Netherlands, to Maris Egerilla for scoring that brace in injury time. A very impressive comeback. Viviana Miedemar tweeted that she loves Egerilla's forehead now. Charlotte, what was it like in the stadium in Hampton Park? Were the England players and the fans aware of what was happening in the Netherlands game? In the press box, you go, Netherlands have scored 1-0, Netherlands have scored 2-0. And then in those dying moments, somebody just said, Netherlands have scored, it's 3-0. And an England technical member of staff came running out to Serena Wiegmann in her technical area, communicated the message, and Wiegmann said to Lucy Bronze, who was the closest player on the touchline, we've got to score. We've got to go now. And then that's when you see Lucy Bronze just on her rampaging run, going into the back post, headering in. And at that point, England have done it. They've scored again, 6-0. And you're just thinking, right, that's it. And Lucy Bronze celebrated for the first time 
England players celebrated up until now, but they didn't celebrate their goals at all because they knew that they had a job to do. They were pointing to the ball in the back of the net, get it back to the halfway line, start again. And I stood up because as soon as the players finish, they go to the mix zone and I didn't want to miss them. I'm in my head, Team GB are still having a chance of qualifying and England are top of the group. But because the Netherlands game was later, England players still waited and they just waited in that huddle, which felt like ages. But it all happened so quickly. In the middle of the pitch, you had a, a staff member holding their phone up and you could see their reactions. As soon as he said they've scored, Lucy Bronze fell to the floor. Ian Vering, the assistant, just walked away almost in exasperation. And you're thinking, what's just happened? And then... The England players, just their body language, it was muted celebrations and you go into the mix zone in a completely different mindset. What did Serena and the players say? Uh, I spoke to Fran Kirby. She said she was just really proud of the players' performance, obviously gutted, just a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, the communication, they, they knew all the time what was at stake and they knew what they had to do. Uh, that was communicated via Serena and Lucy Bruns. Equally, Neve Charles just said, you know, you can't dwell on what could have been or that will just go round and round in your head. I'm thinking of, oh, there's so many chances, but like Lauren Hemp hitting the post just in this game, but then Mary Earps's Claude's save. Serena Wiegmann just said she was almost, for the first time, speechless in the huddle. She said to the players, I don't know what to say. I'm just extremely proud of our performance, but bitterly disappointed. And there was a tinge of frustration but also sadness from Wiegmann I think this is her biggest failure to date in her managerial career and it's also the Dutch that went through the team she used to coach and you know her home side so that must be a bit of a more difficult pill to swallow as well the team that she built the foundations on when England played away against Netherlands Andreas Jonker said before the World Cup we just said play like you did for Serena so it's quite ironic that she has set up that team and they are the team to pip England to a, a Nations League semi-final spot. And there's so many links between these two teams, aren't there? Imagine being in the Miedemar household after that one. So England were qualifying on behalf of Team GB. Charlotte, you've written about this for The Athletic. What does it mean to miss the Olympics? I think if you wind back to 2012, so... 11 years ago, a decade before the Euros. And, and Hope Powell said that was a major breakthrough for the sport, over 70,000 fans in their group stage game at Wembley against Brazil. And Team GB haven't played in front of those fans given the, the pandemic, at which made Tokyo 2020, which was played in 2021, a very weird tournament. And Team GB weren't at Rio 2016. It's taken very seriously. It's not an under-23 tournament like the men's. The Olympics is something that all the big nations want to compete in. And I think there is a argument that a rest and a reset will benefit, especially the England players. But Serena Wiegmann was asked this and she said, yes, rest is important. Players aren't robots, but you want to be at those major tournaments. You want to be competing for medals. They are serial winners. I don't think commercially it will affect the players too much, given that football isn't necessarily an Olympic sport. I spoke to one agent and he said it would benefit them more if they're at Paris Fashion Week than 
Paris Olympics. That's that is the landscape of women's football at the moment that you're earning more off the pitch than on the pitch. It's also a blow for other nations like Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland who don't regularly qualify for major tournaments. But let's be realistic. It was really only Aaron Cuthbert who had a fighting chance of getting into that Team GB squad. And it also has effects on Euro 2025 because the Nations League rankings and seedings will affect their qualification pot for Euro 2025. Uh, England finishing second instead of third is key. Then they're not playing in a relegation playoff, but it's friendlies for England in February and, and not a semi-final or even a final against the top European nations. Mm. Chloe, what do you think? Do you think it will benefit these players to miss the Olympics or or not? I think it's a really tough one, Soph. I think um, the sort of player side of me is thinking, do you know what, actually it's, it's probably a good thing to have a summer where you're not sort of ramping up towards a major international tournament where you don't have that pressure. You can kind of take one summer before everything kicks off again next year. Um, and in terms of sort of, you know, rehab, recovery, and I'm not even just talking physically, I think the mental exhaustion of obviously going from playing the WSL, having about four or five weeks off and then going straight into the other side of the world and then coming out of the back of that, playing those Women's Nations League's victories and also the Champions Leagues for, for some of the teams. So I think um, the the mental recovery, I mean, that's something that obviously we've just seen sort of come out in the FIFA Pro report, like, like Charlotte was saying, um, that there hasn't been that sort of adequate amount of, of rest emotionally and physically. So I think if I'm going to sort of put any kind of silver lining on being out of the, the tournament, I think player welfare, I think is at the absolute top of that. From a personal perspective, yeah, I'm not sure I want to see a, a summer dominated by men's football. Obviously, we've got the, the men's Euros and the and the Copper America as well. So there'll still be football on. But would I have liked to see Team GB? Yeah. And also what Team GB would have looked like now, you know, obviously bringing in players from, from the, the different nations. Um, it would have been exciting to kind of see for the first time Serena sort of picking a team that, you know, you kind of get used to the kind of players that we're going to see in some of those um, press conferences and, and when the announcements are made. But it would have been really exciting to see what what talent Serena might have brought in uh, from the different nations as well. Now that they've got more friendlies, it actually might be a chance for more young players to come in through for the next cycle, for the next World Cup. It was interesting. Wiegmann was asked about her rotation and she said, well, we didn't really have the opportunity to rotate this year, which... Okay, but in the autumn last year, you had opportunities to rotate. And at the Arnold Clark Cup, she had opportunities to rotate and we saw her do that more. But I think that has to be in the forefront of her mind to give more inexperienced players more caps. Right, let's figure out where it all went wrong for England, because I think that's the question that a lot of people are asking themselves. Charlotte, you're up first. What do you think? The damage was done before this game. I think there were some uncharacteristic sloppy play in terms of giving the ball away, errors which led to to goals. If you think back to that Belgium 3-2 defeat and even the defeat to the Netherlands 2-1, just some poor, poor decision-making against the Netherlands last Friday. England really struggled to dominate that midfield and, and clinical in front of goal. I mean, going into the Scotland game, they had 87 shots and 28 on target. And that's a quite an alarmingly low percentage of shots on target. So we knew that England weren't ruthless enough in the early stages of their campaign and, and it came back to bite them. 
Yeah, Charlotte's got it spot on. I think when you kind of look at how England have performed at like the entirety of the tournament they've had, it's not been good enough. The standard hasn't been there. Probably the biggest nail in the coffin was probably the 3-2 win uh, against Netherlands on Friday. I think, you know, when you look at that first half performance and what they should have been doing and what they weren't doing, I was there at Wembley. It was like watching a team fall apart, essentially, in the first half. It just, I didn't really understand why we'd got into this situation in the first place, I think, you know, when you're trying to then claw back results like that because of, you know, sloppy defending, because of, you know, pressing up too high and, and leaving gaps on the wings, I think, you know, these are basics and these are things that teams will keep on exploiting. We keep on doing it. We keep on making the same mistakes, uncharacteristic mistakes as well. I mean, I've got to, I'll never, ever want to criticise Mary Earps too much. You know, she's one of my absolute goalkeeping icons, but one of the Netherlands goals was probably something that she should have done better with um you know it sort of slipped out underneath her her hand and you know when you look at that but then you also look at the game last night and some of the saves that she she made there it's hard to kind of place absolutely any blame on any one individual player I mean I don't think we've been helped as well by Millie Bright not being in uh, the games either I think that sort of you know presented a little bit of a defensive issue uh for Serena as well I think Esme Morgan last night was Pretty good, to be fair. I think, uh, you know, for someone who's sort of, um, you know, just sort of coming into the squad at one of the most critical points in the tournament at the very end, I think um, she held her absolute nerve. So, yeah, credit to her. But I think defensively, like, we've looked not great at all. This is not the best run of form that we've ever seen from England. But I think the expectation on England is so high. I don't think this is anything that we should necessarily be worrying about. I think we're just allowed a dip in performance. It is one of those things. You rebuild, you go again. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not overly worried. But I think, yeah, this... Um, this hasn't been the best tournament for us at all. And there are some bright signs, aren't there? The intensity that they showed, especially in that second half against the Netherlands and the first half against Scotland. That's something I'd like to see more and more. Obviously, the situation created it. But also Lauren James, you know, two assists for two key goals in that first game against the Netherlands. Then two goals in the space of less than two minutes and an assist in the Scotland game. So there are some some bright signs kind of for England to build on, aren't there, Charlotte? There are, absolutely. Yeah, Lauren James was key and clinical. But you have to also look at the work off the ball. Serena Wiegmann said that she needed to press better in the Netherlands game. And if if one chain is out of that pressing sequence, then it it falls apart. And we saw, you know, one ball in behind for the for the Dutch and, and they left England's centre backs exposed. Beth Mead the introduction of Beth Mead has been night and day, I think, uh, for England. And that's really encouraging. Back from doing her ACL. Exactly. And uh, hats off to Esme Morgan as well, coming in at centre-back and, and doing her job on Tuesday night. But you have to also think, you know, had some players had the Olympics firmly in their mind and pushed through to the World Cup, will some of them retire? You know, there are some of an ageing squad and so Wiegmann will have to readdress that balance as well. Definitely. I was checking everyone's date of birth last night. I think Lucy Bronze is the oldest, followed by Rachel Daly. But obviously age isn't the only factor in retiring. But it will be interesting to see. There was a lot of talk in the build-up to the game about the fact that England were qualifying for Team GB and Scotland are part of Team GB. So if England are playing Scotland, it was in Scotland's best interests not to win this game. Judging by what we saw, did Scotland throw the game? I mean, absolutely not. I think I think when you look at the sort of professionalism and the sort of morals and the ethics of the players, like, I don't think I could ever make that accusation that they're 
would sort of be kind of any kind of sort of match fixing or you know anything sort of untoward happening in the game. I think it was probably quite an unusual result in the sense that England haven't beaten Scotland by that much in recent sort of matchups. Um, you know, two goals here, two goals there, but six nil is sort of quite the thrashing. You know, you have to look at England's performance and what they had to achieve, um, you know, yesterday night. So I think they were always having the back of their minds that nothing less than sort of, you know, four, five, six goals was going to give them a, a decent chance of, of making it through to the next stages. So no, but I think it was unusual to obviously, you know, we've, we've had this situation where they've got this, you know, overarching conflict between obviously wanting to play, you know, for Team GB, but also being the barrier to England qualifying and, and them doing that so they should never be put in that situation in the first place I think it, it was quite interesting to see that Sandy McIver wasn't starting the game last night I think it's um it's probably more telling of a, a goalkeeper who is probably one of the ones who was most conflicted alongside um, Erin Cuthbert who, who did start but Sandy McIver I think was in that unusual position of being the goalkeeper who probably wanted maybe to help in some way uh, obviously increase her chances of going into Team GB but also wants to do the absolute best for her country and, and um, that would have been the overarching one. Sandy McKeever obviously being the keeper who switched her allegiance from England to Scotland very recently. You also saw Scotland really rally in the the second half. Their three changes at halftime did make a difference. So I agree with you. It didn't really look like Scotland through the game and wouldn't want to make that accusation myself at all. But it's a question that has to be asked, I suppose. Oh, 100%. It's just such an unusual situation to be putting players in. But it's a, it's a toughie. And I, yeah, I hope we don't see that again for the, for the next time it comes around. Definitely. And we spoke more on last week's show about changes that potentially need to be made for this qualification system, whether it's a good qualification system or not, whether more Olympic spots need to be up for grabs. So I'd recommend listeners take a listen to that as well. Right. Time to zoom out a bit from England. That's up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to Full Time Europe from The Athletic. The four teams that are through are France, Spain, Germany and the Netherlands. France and Spain topped their groups on Friday and Germany drew nil-nil with Wales on Tuesday to go through and we know all about the Netherlands. So because France are the hosts of the Olympics, that means they automatically qualify. So two of the three other teams, that's two of Spain, Germany and the Netherlands, will make the Olympics. First of all, what a revival from Germany going out on the group stages of the World Cup and now they have a real shot at the Olympics. Chloe, big question for you this morning. Whose chances do you fancy? I mean, I actually fancy Spain. I think I've been sort of watching some of their games and sort of thinking there's just so much in them still. I think obviously off the back of everything that happened over summer, you know, I just I think there's a squad that just seems very reunited, very kind of like reignited. And I was looking back at some of the highlights from the at the Germany Wales game last night and um 
yeah, I've got to give a massive shout out to Wales, to be fair. They had such a great performance. I thought that was an absolute touch. Um, but yeah, I think Spain for me. I think also Germany as well. I mean, they look too strong. They're an absolute formidable force. Yeah, I'd expect those two to go through. Sorry. Sorry, Netherlands. It's not because I feel bitter about what Bit of beef for the Netherlands this <laughs> <promise>. morning. <laughs> right, while we're on UEFA, can I get a very quick reaction to this Champions League expansion and the new second tier competition that will be coming into place from the 2025-26 season. Everyone's been trying to figure out what it actually means. Charlotte, we're going to give you that task this morning. Very briefly, we don't need all the details, but can you just explain kind of the headline of of what's happened? Okay, uh, Champions League format will expand from 16 teams to 18. So two more clubs will get the chance to play in Europe's top tier. It's a league stage rather than a group stage so teams will play six different teams in a one-legged tie and then they're grouped in a league table much like uh, we experience in domestic competition so the change I suppose for England is now the top four will qualify for the knockouts uh, straight away previously it was only the top three domestic uh, champions which qualified alongside the title holder and because the title holder has always been uh, one of the top three league winners such as Barcelona or Lyon the fourth country uh, qualified every time which was England and when I'm talking about countries I'm talking about those ranked highest by coefficient so that means England gets an automatic qualification spot the other interesting part is that they've only expanded by two teams I thought they may go to 24 But I think uh, UEFA are wanting to do this gradually. But it ultimately means bigger teams are going to play bigger teams more often. And that's, in terms of a commercial perspective, more eyeballs, more broadcast, hopefully, income, creating more revenue for those uh, teams, as well as continuing the expansion uh, across Europe. So teams will also play two-legged knockout matches to try and join those in the Champions League automatic qualification. Yes, that's it. So if England were ranked third or fourth by UEFA, which they have been for the past 10 seasons, the champions of the WSL would enter in the league stage, but the runners-up and third-place teams would have to enter through qualifying. For this second-tier competition, Charlotte, does this open up European football to more teams in the WSL outside of those top three? No. And that's really interesting. Uh, you won't see a, a fourth or a fifth or a sixth uh, place finish in the WSL going into a, a Europa League style tournament, which is the second European competition. One might have expected that, but your, you know, Tottenham or Aston Villa won't get a chance to play in Europe. And UEFA have instead decided that those who don't automatically qualify for the Champions League will go into the second European competition. And it will be actually the champions of lower ranked uh, UEFA coefficient countries. So from across Europe, which will go into that competition. So UEFA have decided again to grow the game geographically rather than benefit the depth of the WSL. Do you think that was a good decision, Chloe? 
I think it's a difficult a difficult one to kind of predict how it's going to all look next year. I think the sort of fear is that you're going to end up with this sort of secondary competition with teams that sort of are relatively unknown. So it's unsure sort of how much traction in terms of sort of audiences and attention it's going to get. But also on the flip side of that, I think it's great that more clubs at sort of lower levels are going to be exposed to European football. I think, you know, having those kind of experiences to play on the European stage will be an absolutely amazing thing. I think there needs to be some kind of backstop from UEFA or some kind of um, financial support for some of those teams, because obviously playing in and around Europe, you know, visiting different countries, you know, all the kind of cost uh, and infrastructure that comes around playing in Europe needs to also be supported. So if you've got teams that are sort of, you know, lower ranked in, you know, the Spanish, French leagues uh, now sort of, you know, also having to cater European football into budgets, I think that also needs to be factored in that that costs a lot of money to fly squads everywhere and and have that kind of support in place. So, yeah, that's one thing I'd like to see. And also, I think it'd be very interesting to see what the situation is with the broadcast deal over sort of the the secondary league, if we can kind of call it that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of what the situation is with DAZN and whether they choose to cover that, because I think that'll be great for increasing attention to some of those clubs that haven't sort of necessarily had that before. Yeah, so there's sort of a lot of unknowns there. But generally speaking, I think it's good to definitely expand the leagues have that secondary competition and also yeah increase exposure and and hopefully grow the game and make it more competitive so that will come into place from the 2025-26 season so not this season not next season but the season after right it's time to bring our focus now on to sweden the other big name missing from the olympics so it's goodbye to charlotte and chloe bye-bye sophie i'll see you later guys and we'll be bringing in swedish football journalist mia erickson next Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Full-Time Europe with Sophie Penny. Silver medalists in the last two Olympics, the third place team at the past two World Cups. It is Sweden who secured the bronze medal and not But Sweden won't be in Paris 2024. World Cup champion Spain go through ahead of them. Swedish football journalist Mia Eriksson joins me. Hi, Mia. Hi, hi. Our American listeners are probably rubbing their hands together at this news because Sweden knocked the two-time defending champions USA out of the World Cup this year. But what has the reaction been in Sweden to this news? I think there's two sides. One that says, okay, but we had Spain in our group, so Mm -hmm. this is fine. But there's also um, worries uh, about the the way that Sweden has uh, performed overall. And in terms of history, this feels like a big moment because Sweden have been part of women's football in the Olympics since it was introduced in 1996. This is the first time ever they won't be in that tournament. In terms of why this happened, do you think it was just inevitable because Spain were in their Nations League group? It's football. Everything can happen. They know that they have the capacity to to beat Spain on on the best day um but obviously with 
with how everything turned out. I think it's not the way Sweden played against Spain that is the issue. It's over the overall performance and uh, the games against Switzerland and Italy. I agree. Those results against Italy and Switzerland do stand out. A one-all draw with Italy, only pulling back an equaliser in stoppage time, and on Friday losing 1-0 to Switzerland. What do you think went wrong there? You know when, when everything goes against you, sort of. But, I mean, in Switzerland there was a snowstorm. And, <laughs> uh, they created so many chances, but, but the ball... In, in those types of situations when everything around you is kind of crumbling a little bit, it, it doesn't happen for you. Uh, I would say that that was uh, the case uh, in um, when they played in Switzerland. So 28 shots, four on target against Switzerland, which is quite a shocking percentage of shots on target. Obviously at the World Cup, we saw that they sometimes found it tricky to score goals from open play. Nine of the 14 goals were from set pieces. Is that still an issue and what tweaks do you think need to be made? I think it's kind of interesting that they have scored goals from open play against Spain in the Nations League, but Mm -hmm. they have struggled uh, against the other uh, teams. Uh, Johanna Rytten-Kahneryd scored from open open play when they were in Italy. But the thing is that this has been going on since the, the Euros, actually, when Peter Jaradsson, the head coach, he, he spoke about this after the game against England. So he said that uh, Swedish players were not, uh, were not that good uh, from early age on 1v1 situations, you know, man-man marking, everything like that. And And this is what they do in Spain like like from from very early age they they repeat 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 um, dribbles passes you know everything like that and we don't have that kind of education in Sweden for players from the young age and I think that this is what we see now when when the women's game has developed this much we see the the cracks if that makes sense and the personnel up front Obviously, listeners from the UK will be familiar with Stina Blackstinius. Who else do they have up front who they need to step up and get more of those balls in the back of the net? Obviously, Johanna Rytten-Kahneryd is one. I mean, I, I think that she was one of our best players yesterday. And, and something has happened with a player like her. Chelsea player. She has really stepped up to the occasion. Uh, she She wasn't there in the World Cup, but now she is. And that's interesting because I think she will be one of the, from all the things we just talked about, you know, going up 1v1, playing fast-paced and everything like that because of the technique she already got. She has that in her body already. Uh, So I do think that she will be one of the most important players for Sweden in the future. But also we have young players that, that could step up now. And now we will have a year to reorganize and think about uh, those players and their roles in the future. New talent coming through and old talent leaving the team with Sweden. Carolina Seger has played her last match for Sweden after 18 years. She made her debut for the senior team in 2005. So 240 caps, the most of any Swedish player, men or women. Mia, what 
legacy will she leave and and what does this mean for the team having such a huge part of their history leave the squad? I think that the squad uh, as a whole group has been prepared uh, and has been preparing for this the last year. But I think the biggest hole she she will leave is the fact that she is a, a, a true leader. And, and uh, every player after yesterday's game against Spain, when they talked about her, you, could, you can really believe that that's the truth. It's so hard also for, for younger players maybe to realize how big she has been uh, for Swedish women's football. I hope that we will get to see her one more season at least in Swedish club football with her club FC Rosengård. Do we know who the new captain will be? No, I don't think we know because um, Kosvar Aslani has been the one wearing the armband lately. But but she's if if we're going to be frank now, she's not the future either for Sweden. She's thirty four years old, and and we're not going to play in the Olympics now. Will she be at the next Euros? We don't know. So I would I would uh, bet my money on uh, Natalie Björn or uh, Magdalena Eriksson. It is interesting to see if players will step away from the game after missing out from this Olympics. But great to see other young players coming through. Thank you so much for joining us, Mia. Thank you. You can read more about the Olympics, the Nations League and international women's football on The Athletic. Still need to sort your Christmas presents? We have a special offer where you can gift a one-year subscription for just £19.99 or $19.99 and a two-year subscription for £39.99 or $39.99. So head to theathletic.com slash gift to grab that offer. When the show ends, you should leave us a quick rating and review as well and follow Full Time Europe on your podcast feed. To get in touch, send us an email on fte at theathletic.com. Bye for now. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 